is our birthday music. So we have our birthdays for today, November 22nd. Happy birthday to Ernest Herrera Sr. of Altoona. Happy birthday to Don Goble of Grimes. Happy birthday to Dorothy Zika of Adele. A happy birthday to Richard Bonencamp of Fort Madison. And finally, a happy birthday to Raymond McCoy of Mason City. A happy birthday to all of you right before our big holiday here. And we do have some celebrity birthdays as well. Um, comedian director Terry Gilliam from Monty Python is 83. Actor Tom Conti is 82. Singer Jesse Colin Young from the Youngbloods is 82. Guitarist actor S Stephen Van Zandt from the E Street Band and the Sopranos is 73. Bassist Tina Weymouth of the Talking Heads is also 73. Actor Lynn Tucci is 72, singer Lawrence Gowan of Styx is 67, and Mark Ruffalo is 56. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS listener, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now we will turn to today's obituaries with Barb. Thank you, Lisa. We have one obituary today. Kyle Jacobson of Ames. A special service will be held at Homewood Golf Course at 401 East 20th Street in Ames on November 25th, starting at 5 p.m. until 9 p.m. Online condolences may be directed to www.grandonfuneralandcremationcare.com. And let's see, this is from the Nation and World section. Focus on what brings us together. Best ways to discuss, or avoid, politics at the Thanksgiving table. Lisa Ballenstein's four adult children haven't spent the holidays with her since she voted for former President Donald Trump in 2020. Quote, all the political stuff came up, and our family just has been so fractured, Ballenstein, a 56-year-old resident of Naples, Florida, told USA Today. I love my children. These have been the worst years of my life. Those tensions are beginning to subside this year, as three of her four children agreed to join the family Thanksgiving at Balancing's mother-in-law's house in Tennessee. As her family finally convenes Thursday, Balancing, the owner of an aquascape installation business, said political opinions won't be allowed at the table. But that may be easier said than done. And Balancing's family isn't alone. 
this Thanksgiving as Americans travel far and wide to break bread with loved ones. Many will be navigating, or trying to avoid, heated discussions over politics and debates dividing the country from the upcoming 2024 presidential election to the ongoing war in Israel. Psychologists and diversity Equity and inclusion experts told USA Today how families can chart a course through and around landmine-filled political discussions this year and enjoy a happy holiday. They are avoiding political discourse. Holidays are known as a time when people get together. Sometimes that includes people who wouldn't normally choose to be around each other, said Joshua Coleman, psychologist and author of Rules of Estrangement. And as families start to discuss controversial issues, underlying dynamics can rise to the surface. Those may include long-standing family disputes, sibling rivalries, or other lingering feelings, all of which risk triggering it, being triggered around the holiday dinner table, Coleman said. If the goal this holiday season is to avoid conflict, he suggested that, before knocking on a relative's door, people proactively weigh the situation they're entering. It's useful to kind of take your own temperature about your readiness to be in that environment, Coleman said. What's the likelihood that it's not going to go well and that you're going to end up regretting having gone? Deciding whether to engage at the table. For those who attend family events, the methods of approaching political conversations this Thanksgiving will likely depend on the individual relationship dynamics. Dr. Eileen Kennedy-Moore, a clinical psychologist and host of the advice podcast Kids Ask Dr. Fantastic, recommended that anybody debating whether to tiptoe into political territory should first consider what outcomes they're trying to achieve. If the conversation is likely to devolve into I'm right, you're wrong, screaming match, or if the odds of listening and being heard are zero, Kennedy Moore said it's best to avoid the topic and try talking about other subjects instead. We want to focus on what brings us together, she explained. That could be our shared interest or shared experiences with people that we care about. Considering who will be in attendance is also important, Risha Grant, a DEI consultant, said noting that not everyone in the room may want to take part in a politically charged discussion. Set ground rules, she urged. If you have to have the conversation, put guidelines around it, because if you don't, it's going to get out of hand. And approach with empathy. When political debate is inevitable, Kennedy Moore said the key to keeping the conversation civil is to approach the other person's point of view with curiosity and understanding rather than disdain. We have to tread gently and with focus on our common humanity, rather than blasting someone as you're wrong and you're evil, she warned. The tone and location of the conversation can make a difference between a positive interaction and one that ends in a food fight. Try to keep it friendly. Skip the, skip the insults and the sarcasm and watch your body language, Kennedy Moore suggested. Keep it open and relaxed. Lean back, have your arms and your elbows away from your body. And definitely no pointing. She also recommended containing the discussion to a small group, so yelling is less likely. If tensions begin to rise, it's time to swiftly end the discussion, Grant warned. Typically, she said, this is a point of no return when people begin to stop listening and instead dig their heels into the sand. Most likely, people that are saying things that are absolutely rude and out of line on holidays don't have any boundaries, she said. You have to set those boundaries, and I don't say this lightly because family is very important, but even to the point of leaving. 
how the presidential turkey pardoning came to be. This is written by Savannah Kuchar for the USA Today. While millions of American families will feature a turkey at the center of their feast on Thursday, one pair of lucky birds will be spared this roasted fate via a presidential pardon. The annual pardoning of a turkey is a popular staple of White House Thanksgiving celebrations. Democratic and Republican leaders alike have granted pardons to a group of fortunate turkeys, but don't worry, they haven't actually been convicted of any crimes. President Joe Biden has so far given a reprieve to six birds, peanut butter and jelly in 2021, chocolate and chip last year, and Liberty and Bell this year. But when did this tradition start, and which American president was the first to extend his pardon powers to the Thanksgiving poultry? Each year, two birds, the official Thanksgiving turkey and an alternate, are selected and sent to Washington, D.C., where the president spares them from being served alongside the stuffing and the cranberry sauce. This year, the pair comes from Wilmar, Minnesota. Ahead of meeting the president, the birds receive the celebrity treatment, including a stay in the Capitol's luxury Willard Intercontinental Washington Hotel. And after their pardoning, the turkeys will be relocated to a farm and left to live out the rest of their lives unharmed. Turkeys are popular Thanksgiving gifts to the White House for decades, but former President John F. Kennedy in 1963 became the first president on record to extend Thanksgiving clemency, telling attendees at that year's official turkey presentation, let's keep him going. Kennedy set the pardon precedent, and the act became a norm during former President Ronald Reagan's administration in the 1980s, according to the White House Historical Association. But the tradition was formerly established by President George H.W. Bush in 1989. Let me assure you and this fine Tom Turkey, Bush said during the ceremony that year, as animal rights activists picketed near the White House, that he will not end up on anyone's dinner table. And from the Associated Press, a hat worn by Napoleon sells for $2.1 million at auction. Dateline Paris, a faded and cracked felt bicorn hat worn by Napoleon Bonaparte sold for $2.1 million at an auction Sunday of the French emperor's belongings. Yes, $2.1 million. The signature broad black hat, one of a handful, handful still in existence that Napoleon wore when he ruled 19th century France and waged war in Europe, was initially valued at $650,000 or eight hundred two between $650,000 to $870,000. It was the centerpiece of Sunday's auction in Fontainebleau memorabilia collected by a French industrialist who died last year. But the bidding quickly jumped higher and higher until Jean-Pierre Osnet, president of the Osnet Auction House, designated the winner. We are at 1.6 million for Napoleon's hat for this major symbol of the Napoleonic epoch, he said, as applause rang out in the auction hall. The buyer, whose identity was not released, must pay 28.8% in commissions, according to Osnat, bringing the overall cost to 2.1 million. While other officers customarily wore their bicorn hats with the wigs facing front to back, Napoleon wore his with the ends pointing toward his shoulders, the style known um, 
as um, Bastille or in battle made it easier for his troops to spot their leader in combat. The hat on sale was first recovered by Colonel Pierre Bayon, a quartermaster under Napoleon. According to the auctioneers, the hat then passed through many hands before the industrialist Jean-Louis Nogier acquired it. The entrepreneur spent more than half a, a century assembling his collection of Napoleonic memorabilia, firearms, swords, and coins before his death in 2022. No more overindulging at Thanksgiving? New obesity medications change how users think of their holiday meals. For most of her life, Claudia Stearns dreaded Thanksgiving. As a person who struggled with obesity since childhood, Stearns hated the annual turmoil of obsessing about what she ate and the guilt of overindulging on a holiday built around food. Now, after losing nearly 100 pounds, using medications, including Wigovi, a powerful new anti-obesity drug, Stern said the food noise in her head has gone very, very quiet. Last year, it felt so lovely to just be able to enjoy my meal, to focus on being with friends and family, to focus on the joy of the day, says Stearns, 65, of Somerville, Massachusetts. That was a whole new experience. As millions of Americans struggling with obesity gain access to a new generation of weight loss drugs, Stern's experience is becoming more common and more noticeable at the times of the year when cooking, eating, and a sense of abundance can define and heighten gatherings of loved ones and friends. Medical experts and consumers say the drugs are shifting not only what users eat, but also the way they think about food. For some, it means greater mental control over their meals. Others say it saps the enjoyment from social situations, including traditionally food-centered holidays like Thanksgiving, Passover, and Christmas. It's something that really changes a lot of things in their life, says Dr. Daniel Besson, chief of endocrinology at Denver Health, who treats patients with obesity. They go from food being a central focus to it's just not. The new obesity drugs, originally designed to treat diabetes, include semaglutide, used in Ozempic and Wegovy, Trisepatide, used in Monjaro, and recently approved as Zepbound. Now aimed at weight loss, too, the drugs de deliver as weekly injections work far differently than any diet. They mimic powerful hormones that kick in after people eat to regulate appetite and the feeling of fullness communicated between the gut and the brain. Users can lose as much as 15% to 25% of their body weight, studies show. That's how it works. It reduces the rewarding aspects of food, explains Dr. Michael Schwartz, an expert in metabolism, diabetes, and obesity at the University of Washington in Seattle. For Stearns, who started treatment in 2020, using the weight loss medications means she can take a few bites of her favorite Thanksgiving pies and then stop. I would not feel full, she says, but I would feel satisfied. Yet such a shift can have broader implications, both religious and cultural, because it alters the experience of festive and religious holidays that are often built around interactions with food, and lots of it. Quote, I'm Italian. For us, it's like going to church, going to a table, she said, said Joe Saponi, 64, a retiree from Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, who lost about 100 pounds with dieting in Mumjaro. He no longer needs what he called the food orgy of a holiday, but he acknowledges it was an adjustment. Parts of succeeding at this is disconnecting a good time with what you eat, he said. Am I still going to have fun if I don't eat that much? Many users welcome what they say is greater control over what they eat, even during the emotionally charged holiday season. 
I may be more selective of the items I put on my plate, says Tara Rodenhofer, 48, of Trinity, Florida. She lost more than 200 pounds after joining a clinical trial testing Monjaro for weight loss in 2020. I don't care about the bread as much. I still eat what I enjoy. But others on the drugs lose their appetites entirely or suffer side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, that undermine the pleasure of any food. I've had a handful of patients over the years who are really miserable because they didn't enjoy food in the same way, says Dr. Katherine Saunders, an obesity expert at Weill Cornell Medicine and co-founder of IntelliHealth, a clinical and software company that focuses on obesity treatment. But she added, most people who have turned weight loss medications have spent years struggling with a physical and mental burden of chronic obesity and are relieved to discover a decreased desire for food and grateful to shed pounds. When people stop taking the drugs, their appetites return and they regain weight, often faster than they lost it, studies show. One early analysis found that two-thirds of patients who started taking weight loss drugs were no longer using them a year later. Part of that may be due to high cost and ongoing supply shortages. But the larger question of what it means to alter a basic human drive like appetite needs to be considered as well, says Dr. Jens Jewel Holst of the University of Copenhagen. He's one of the researchers who first identified the gut hormone GLP-1, or glucagon-like peptide 1, which eventually led to a new class of obesity drugs. Speaking at an international diabetes conference this fall, Holst offered a philosophical critique of the new medication's real-world impact. Why is it that you've lost weight? That's because you've lost your appetite. That's because you've lost the pleasure of eating and the reward of having a beautiful meal, Holst told his colleagues. And how long can you stand that? That is the real, real question. D.C. taking steps to combat car thefts. Cameras given to food delivery, hail ride, hail, or ride hail drivers, and others receive air tags. Dateline Washington, this is written by Ashraf Khalil for the Associated Press. Jeff Pina contacted his father as soon as he heard that police were passing out auto tracking devices to, set, to try to stem a sharp increase in carjackings, car thefts, and other crimes in Washington, D.C., it's just getting crazy out there, said Pina, whose father, Raul Pina, drives for the Ride Hail app Lyft, especially now because Christmas is coming and nobody has any money. That's why the pair recently sat in a line of cars winding around the block near Nationals Park, the city's pro baseball stadium, waiting for their turn for a police officer to install the tracker, literally just an Apple AirTag, and show them how to use it. The initiative is part of a multi-pronged anti-crime offensive launched by the Metropolitan Police Department and Mayor Muriel Bowser's, Bowser's government. Violent crimes, particularly homicide and car theft, have risen sharply, and Deputy Mayor for Public Safety, Lindsay Apaya, flatly stated before the House Judiciary Committee last month that the city is in the midst of a crime crisis. The elder Pinion, age 58, said he generally enjoyed driving and meeting new people, but had become much more cautious in recent months and stopped driving late at night. I do get nervous sometimes, he said. It's worse now because it gets dark so early in the winter. Right now, I feel very unsafe. One week later, Fanita Dilworth told a similar story. The 
Mother of three and grandmother of two was sitting in one of about a dozen vehicles waiting in the parking lot of the old Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium, former home of Washington's NFL team, for a city-sponsored handout of dashboard cameras. They told me to get a camera and make sure every somebody installs it for me, she laughed. If a person knows they're being recorded, they're less likely to do anything silly. The cameras were free for any District of Columbia resident who drives for a ride-hail company like Uber, Lyft, or Alto, or for a food delivery service like DoorDash. The AirTag trackers were available to any resident who lives in one of several designated auto theft hot zones. As of November 14th, homicides are up 34% compared with this time last year, car theft is up 98%, and carjackings have more than doubled up 104%. Recent carjacking victims include a Texas congressman and a diplomat from the United Arab Emirates. It's not lost on us that we need to do more to increase public safety, said Saleh Kaparzpari, head of the city's Department of Nightlife and Culture. His department, which covers issues relating to restaurants and food delivery, partner with the de Department for, for Hire Vehicles for the dashboard camera distributions. The initiative is funded by a $500,000 donation from DoorDash, enough to pay for about 2,500 camera kits. We do feel it will help to deter crime. That camera footage can help police to close a case and help prosecutors to successfully prosecute that case. Some, like Jessica Gray, a high school administrator who was waiting in line for an air tag, said they were happy for the initiative, although she questioned exactly how the process would work. When you think about the response time, by the time the police respond and start tracking down the car, will there be anything left of it by the time they find it, she said. Police Sergeant Anthony Walsh didn't promise that the police would immediately be able to recover a stolen car intact, but he said the tracker information would help police trace the route of the car, thieves, and possibly pull camera um, footage, security camera footage from along that route to aid in an eventual arrest, arrest and court case. This is all about helping our investigators build a case that holds up in court and hopefully takes car thieves off the streets. That's the idea, he said. Walsh also found himself fielding questions about whether the air tag would allow the government to track drivers' movements. He pointed out that the residents themselves would be doing the tracking on their phones and would turn over that information to the police if they wanted to aid in the investigation. East High Locker Partners celebrate gallery business. Friends have co-owned Moberg Galleries for two decades. T.J. Moberg and Ryan Mullen met as locker partners at East High School in Des Moines. During their formative years, they shared a dark gray locker at the public high school near Iowa State Capitol. Now, the childhood best friends are co-owners of Moberg Gallery, a contemporary art gallery across from Terrace Hill. Every time I tell somebody to make the check out to Locker Partners LLC, they go, why are you guys called Locker Partners, Moberg told the register. This year, Moberg and Mullen are celebrating 20 years of the gallery's success and an emerging local legacy of bringing national artists to the city's backyard. Being in the game for 20 years helps a lot, or being in Des Moines helps us too, to reach out to artists like people from Austin or people from Germany, people from Minneapolis via Vietnam, people from Denver, Mullen said. The duo's first business venture came in the form of under-the-table deals, selling beer gag cups in high school. Quote, if you told everybody you knew or hung out with every single weekend, and I t did the same, we could pull together everybody and sell the most cake cups. So that was our first business venture together, Mullen said. 
Mullen moved to Tampa soon after graduating from East High in 1993. He also lived in Los Angeles in Austin, Texas. Later, he met his wife, Goizani, and the couple moved back to the metro from Denver after 15 years away. Moberg stayed in Des Moines and focused on his craft. In 2003, he opened Moberg Gallery on Ingersoll Avenue. The gallery's original location served as part-time studio, part showcase. Despite the distance between them, the two duos stayed close friends. I didn't really keep in touch with anybody else from high school unless they were hanging out with you, Mullen said before turning to Moberg. When Mullen returned to the Metro in 2007, he joined Moberg as a studio assistant. Later, he became a gallery manager. We found out he had a whole bunch of other talents and skills that could help the business. So he just slowly started saying, I'll take over that, and I'll take over that. And now he does all of our content, Moberg said. The pair have brought dozens of notable nationally and internationally recognized contemporary artists to the city's neighborhoods. They have ranged from the Des Moines natives Jordan Weber and Robert Moore to Madrid-born Ruben Sanchez and Brooklyn artist Ricardo Gonzalez of It's a Living Art fame. Moberg, the primary gallery owner, is the gallery's lead consultant for commercial art. Molan, a partner, creates all of the gallery's content from social media posts and photos to glossy videos. He serves as a gallery's manager. The two men share day-to-day -day duties at the gallery, including curation and art relations. Mullen's distant cousin, Michaela, serves as a gallery writer and assists with artists and client relations at Moberg Gallery. It kind of reminds me of when your mom retired at Mercy Medical Center. They had to hire like six people to take over one job. If Ryan ever left the gallery, I'd have to hire like six people to take over his one job, Moberg said. In 2020, they moved to their current space on Grand Avenue, near the Governor's Mansion. Recently, they served as consultants on a new Dogtown mural by British muralist Pref that appears on Lucky Horse Beer and Burgers in the city's Drake neighborhood. On November 3rd, Moberg and Mullen celebrated with collectors and community members during an opening at the Grand Avenue Gallery for their 20th anniversary exhibit. Art was hung on the building's white walls as the pair mixed and mingled with attendees. In the next 20 years, they plan to shift away from Iowa artists to focus their attention on artists elsewhere. Mullen and Moberg said they are not moving past Iowa-focused art, but it is no longer a main priority. It's easy to diss art when your neighbor is making it, you know, for Iowans to look at Iowa art, Mullen said. During the gallery's 20th anniversary celebrations, Moberg and Mullen will host a number of openings at the space. The events include a Jeff Fleming show called Absurdities, which opens on January 12th, and a Chris Vance show on March 8th. The Childhood Best Friends will also host an exhibit at the International Contemporary Scope Art Show during Art Basel, the famed art fair in Miami. Scope takes place from December 5th to 10th. Decades later, they're still locked in. They've traded their sophomore year locker for a lofty gallery. 36th Annual Food at First Thanksgiving Meal, expected to serve 800, Ames Nonprofit says. This is written by Rana Faberg. Days before Thanksgiving, prep work begins at Food at First as the organization readies to serve an expected 800 free meals. The Ames-based nonprofit located at First Christian Church on Clark Avenue is 
relying on roughly 250 volunteers to prep and serve for the annual holiday celebration. Turkey, mashed potatoes and gravy, green bean casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pumpkin bars, all made from scratch, will be served for Food at First 36th annual Thanksgiving. There will even be tofurkey available for vegetarians. Guests can eat in the Food at First dining room, pick up meals for carryout, or even call for delivery from 1130 to 1 on Thursday, November 23rd. The organization's executive director, Patty Yoder, encourages people to call 515-344-4357 as soon as possible to get on that list for delivery. The Food at First Kitchen is always buzzing with action. Preparation for the big holiday meal is underway, even as Food at First continues its other daily efforts, providing a hot meal every day of the year. The organization also welcomes people to its perishable food pantry three days a week. The magic happens in our kitchen every day, Yoder says. We serve a meal 365 days a year, regardless of the weather. Food at First even served a meal... August 10th, 2020, the day a derecho wiped out power in the Ames area. We just found a way to get it done, she said. Food at First operates as a nonprofit with no affiliation, although housed in the First Christian Church, it's not part of the church. Yoder said that the program is anchored by donations. Individuals, families, organizations, and businesses donate food to Food at First. Volunteers act as gleaners and pick up donated food from places like Sam's Club, Walmart, and Iowa State University. Other volunteers organize the food in the pantry, which includes produce, daily products, dairy products, and meat. There's also a wealth of non-perishable items. There are several unique items about our food pantry. It's no question asked, Yoder said. Everyone's welcome, no matter what. There's no paperwork. There's no forms to fill out. We don't care where you live or how much money you make. If you're hungry, you're welcome. You don't even have to have an ID. The number of visits is not limited either. You're welcome to come to the pantry every single time it's open, Yoder said. You can come to the meal every day. Guests can handpick their pantry items, cutting down on waste at home, Yoder said, contrary to other operations that hand out predetermined allotments. With the food pantry open three days a week and a hot meal served every day, food at first depends heavily on the community volunteers to help serve the daily meals and operate the thrice-weekly food pantry. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Lisa Horsch and Barb DeHeck. It's been a pleasure to read for you. And now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Scott Splavik and Mary Frances Evans. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Now here's Mary Frances with our next article. And we're on the opinion page. And most of the page is taken up with the editorial from the Des Moines Register, what register staffers are thankful for. And it shows a photo of people um, sitting around a large table filled with food, including turkey, and a couple of them are holding hands with their eyes closed, uh, probably for the blessing before the meal, and the kids are already diving into the food. So the editorial reads, Every year on Thanksgiving, we take time to express our gratitude for you, the Register's readers and all those who share letters and guest columns that inform and enliven our debates of ideas and solutions. We appreciate your time and insight. As is our tradition, we asked our colleagues in the Register newsroom to share their thoughts on what they are thankful for this year. Tyler Jett, investigative reporter, writes, my son, August, who sleeps through the night, Al Steiden, who is the business and investigative editor, writes, I'm a bike commuter, going from the Drake neighborhood to downtown and back daily. I've commuted on two wheels in other cities, too, battling all sorts of abuse and endangerment from drivers. I even had a gun pulled on me once for, quote, obstructing interstate commerce, whatever that meant. I'm thankful every day for my rides in Des Moines, where my interaction with drivers usually takes the form of giving them a thumbs up rather than a middle finger as they wave me through intersections or give me a wide berth while passing. Thanks, all of you Iowa Nicers, for keeping my rides mostly stress-free and enjoyable. And the next one comes from Lily Smith, registered photojournalist. Lily says, I'm thankful to me one mile from my parents. It must be I'm thankful to be one mile from my parents this holiday season instead of a hundred. I'm thankful for my tuxedo cat, Jelly, waking me up every morning before my alarm. I'm thankful for chances to see my friends this year, both close and far away. I'm thankful for the opportunities to travel and see more of Iowa through my job at the register. Next is Courtney Crowder, Iowa columnist. As always, I'm incredibly thankful for friends, family, health, and love this year. But I'd like to make special mention of Peloton, Yes, the spin bike company. After a hard span last year, my gift to myself was a Peloton, which helped me reframe my life, my body, my mind, and my spirit. For those who also clip in, my leaderboard name is Court Crowder. Tyler Tackman, Iowa Hawkeyes reporter. I'm so thankful for my parents. My dad is my best friend and my mom is my heart. They are my biggest supporters and have helped me navigate the challenges of life. I can't express enough gratitude for them. Chad Listikow, Iowa Hawkeyes columnist. He says, being the sports columnist covering the Iowa Hawkeyes involves a lot of wild hours, inconsistent scheduling, travel during the week and on weekends, and often hopping into action without a moment's notice at any time of day. And producing what hopefully is quality work would not be possible without an amazingly supportive family. Thank you to my wife, Brianna, for her patience and love every hour, day, and week. Thank you to our awesome son, Jack, and energetic daughter, Gabby, for always giving me the best hugs and their understanding when I have to be gone on perfect fall Saturdays. And because Kirk Ferentz goes to a bowl game every year, the holidays. 
I am a lucky and thankful journalist, husband, and dad. Lee Rude, the Register's Reader's Watchdog. I'm thankful for long hikes with my dog Molly, for libraries, for my posse of friends, for good sleep, cozy fires, live music, and new recipes that turn out all right the first time. I am ever grateful when those I love are in good health, and I'm so appreciative for those who try to do good in this divided, chaotic world. Next is Brian Smith, audience growth strategist. And as an aside, Brian Smith is the guy that makes sure Iris gets its register every day. And I could even text him on a weekend and he'll make sure things are working well. He writes, I'm grateful for the village that springs up when things go wrong. I finished last Thanksgiving with an unexpected hospital visit. I'm so fortunate in the days that followed to have had excellent doctors, nurses, and support staff at Mercy One who stabilized me and found the celiac disease that was responsible. Friends and family offered support as I eliminated gluten from my life. The care team at Mercy One and Mission Cancer Plus Blood have helped me recover. <coughs> Pardon me. And I've found a host of online connections who make the journey easier. Cheers to better health for all in 2024. Kim Norvell, Communities Editor, editor writes... I'm so thankful for an exciting local election, the Iowa caucus goers who show up to hear presidential candidates and the reporters who cover it all. Lucas Grundmeyer, opinion editor. I'm thankful for the seemingly in inexhaustible supply of boxcar children mysteries that my daughter reads with my wife and me. Um, Susan Stapleton, entertainment editor and dining reporter. Susan writes, when I was younger, I used to dream of leaving Iowa and experiencing the world. I did, living in Minneapolis, Philadelphia, and Las Vegas. Those experiences informed my career, so now I'm so thankful that I can be back in Iowa with my entire family living in the Des Moines metro. I can never get enough time with the ones I love. Randy Peterson, Iowa State Cyclones columnist. As always, I'm thankful for my daughters and granddaughter for being there whenever I need them. Together, they give me support everyone needs. Very proud to be the CEO of Team Peterson. Philip Jones, retail and real estate reporter. Philip writes, This year, I'm thankful for my kick-ass, high-definition television. Last Black Friday, I bought myself a Christmas present. For a measly $800, I unlocked a key to the world of a 65-inch Sony Bravia supercalifragilistic expialidocious model. The first time I turned it on, I realized that my life had peaked. Marriage? That will never feel better. The birth of my children? That pales to the feeling of seeing a TV as bright as the sun and as wide as the United States light up for the first time. In 2020, I was thankful for my sleeper sofa. It turns out there's something better than the utility belt of living room furniture. It is a TV so bright that it makes you feel immersed in the fanciful or farcical worlds on it. Now as my Missouri Tigers melt down at Faroe Field time and again, I'll grit my teeth and try not to throw a football through my kick-ass TV. Paris Barraza, entertainment reporter. I'm thankful to every person who turns to me at a concert or event, sees I'm doing something a bit odd considering the context, which is scribbling in a notebook and looking a bit serious, and chats with me. It's so nice to meet people, have a friendly chat, and have someone approach me for a change. 
and Carol Hunter, Executive Editor at The Register. I'm thankful for a staff dedicated to seeking the truth and telling compelling stories about Iowans. Whenever I start to get discouraged about the state of journalism today, whether from bottom line worries or the latest unfounded social media attack on a well-reported factual story or the reporter who wrote it, all I usually need to do is have a two-minute conversation with one of my reporters. Perhaps they've just dug out a story they believe the public needs to know or have just interviewed an entrepreneur, artist, or student athlete and have come away excited about telling their story. Their enthusiasm is infectious. I'm inspired by their commitment to their craft and to the well-being of our community. I'm also thankful for the enduring support of family and friends who, among many acts of kindness this year, regularly invite me into their lives for weekend dinners or hosted me at their home in Nicaragua or housed and fed me in an RV as I rode Ragbri. It's always a great year when good friends welcome a newborn to their family, a daughter to join a five-year-old son, new life, new hope. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And that was from Carol Hunter, the executive editor of the Des Moines Register. And I just need to interject. The Des Moines Register gives Iris access to their paper at no cost. And you might not realize this, but a subscription to the Des Moines Register is incredibly expensive, all newspapers. And they make sure, as they have for 35, Five years almost, the Des Moines Register makes sure that we get our paper first so that we can see you. So I am thankful for the Des Moines Register. Our next opinion piece is entitled, Whom Should We Vote For? Maybe Just Pass the Potatoes. It's written by Mike Rowley, who lives in Clive. The crispness in the air, the changing of the seasons, families gathering for the holidays, it can only mean one thing. It must be the season of increasing endorsements for politicians. For Iowans, it comes earlier than to most. It seems like only last week we were counting corn kernels in an Iowa State Fair poll. Each day closer to the Iowa caucus seems to bring more endorsement from elected officials, unions, donors, secret donors, newspapers, media, co-workers, maybe even friends and families. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I should say up front that as I near my 13th opportunity to vote in a presidential election, I have in the past been registered as a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent, a Libertarian, and perhaps others I don't recall. It is not that my views have changed greatly. They have not. Treat others as you would like to be treated. Don't spend more than you have. Share when you can. Never ask others to do anything you would not do yourself and inspire more by example than by words. I used to think these were nearly universal beliefs of most, but perhaps they are not. None of these guidelines belong to any one political party. I usually change my registration status to participate in a caucus or a primary. If someone is running unopposed, it seems a waste of time to participate. I will go to a caucus or a primary that is a competitive contest to support someone closest to my ideals or to try to keep someone else out. It seems if someone endorses a candidate in the hope others will follow them, at least they should include with their endorsement, is their past voting record as part of that endorsement. Every coach or sports fan wants to know a pitcher's past win-loss record and ERA before they see him or her take the mound. 
Again, for full disclosure, I have voted for those who became president. I have voted for those who came in second and more than one who likely was a distant third. I'm sure my record is below 500. I knew a fiscal conservative guy who voted for Ronald Reagan the first time and against him the second time because he felt President Reagan had not done enough to reduce the nation's deficit. I wonder what he thinks of the deficit now, nearly 40 years later. So, as you are sharing a meal this Thanksgiving and Uncle Charlie or Aunt Hattie tells you that you should be supporting candidate X or candidate Y, ask them for their own voting record and see how it, that turned out. Or just ignore it and pass the potatoes and gravy and live another day to write the way, or excuse me, to vote the way you think best. And again, this was written by Mike Rowley, who lives in Clive. I'm going to save the opinions from USA Today for tomorrow's kids because I know that paper's going to be small. So I'm going to set those aside and go on into sports. Um, our listeners have told us they'd like to know what's on TV. So I'm just going to pick out a couple of the big ones. Um, so on ESPN at noon today, Battle for Atlantis, Northern Iowa versus North Carolina quarterfinal on ESPN at noon. Uh, 4 p.m., this is all college men's basketball. On CBS SN at 4 p.m., the Hall of Flame, Fame classic, Creighton versus Loyola Chicago. Um, 7 p.m. on ESPN2, uh, the NIT season tip-off, Baylor versus Oregon State semifinal. Coming down to um, pro basketball tonight on ESPN at 740 in the NBA, it's the Bucks versus the Celtics. And then at 10.05, NBA Warriors versus Suns, both of those on ESPN. Oopsie, pro football. Nope, that's tomorrow. Um, but I'll tell you that tomorrow at 12.30 p.m. on Fox, you got the Packers versus Lions. At 4.30 p.m. on CBS, you've got the Commanders versus Cowboys. And at 8.20 p.m. on NBC tomorrow night, you've got the 49ers versus the Seahawks. So there you go, Mary Sheets. Okay, front page of the sports section. Indian Hills Mpaka, that's spelled M-P-A-K-A, chasing dream to help his family. Dateline Atumwa. And it shows Chris Mpaka, um, a young man standing there. He's twirling a basketball on his middle finger. He's looking right into the camera, wearing a T-shirt that says Indian Hills Basketball, and he's pointing right at the camera. Indian Hills Community College men's basketball player Chris Mpaka sits at a table at the school's Hellier Student Life Center when he looks down and admires his shoes. The Crocs he is wearing are black and decorated with stickers of different NBA teams. Everything is good, he says with a smile. His Crocs are just a reminder of how far he's come since moving to the United States. A sophomore at Indian Hills, he didn't have any money, hardly any belongings, and just one beat-up set of shoes. When he left his home in the Democratic Republic of the Congo to play basketball. Pretty bad, he says. In this Thanksgiving season, in the country he now calls home, Mpaka says he has a lot to be thankful for. Life is looking much better for the six-foot-nine 230-pound forward. His future is now as bright as ever, 
after already coming so far. His story is inspiring not only to me, but I think our staff and our players, said Indian Hills men's basketball coach Josh Sash. It gives you perspective to be thankful for what you have and maybe some things that we take for granted on a daily basis. Mpaka never had so much growing up. He was raised in Kinshasa, the largest city in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, located in one of the poorest areas of Africa. Things got even worse when his parents separated early on. His father, Joseph, lived in a house so small that Mpaka had to move in with his grandmother. His father had to stop working about five years ago due to complications from diabetes. It became even more difficult for Mpaka and his family to afford food. It wasn't uncommon for him to sometimes go a day without eating. If we got food, we ate, he said. Mpaka started playing basketball when he was 10, but he barely had the resources to play. His family could not afford internet service, so he'd ask strangers for money so he could log on and watch highlights of Shaq O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. He sometimes walked an hour to a gym to get shots up. He played in the street with holes in his shoes. You don't have a choice, Mpaka said. You only, you've only got one set of shoes. And that's all he really needed. Mpaka was a natural athlete with tons of potential. He had size, strength, and the desire to get better. Jason Souter, the head coach at Frank Phillips Community College in Texas at the time, found out about Mpaka from a friend who works in the NBA. The coach loved what he saw on film and pulled some strings to bring him to the United States. His first stop was Frank Phillips in Texas, before later transferring to Indian Hills in Ottumwa. He showed up on the Borger, Texas campus September 2022, weighing 202 pounds, which is a staggering number for a player of his stature. He didn't bring much with him, arriving with a small bag of clothes and zero dollars. Sauter knew Mpaka grew up in impoverished conditions, but he quickly learned just how bad it was when he showed up to a practice and his feet constantly slid across the court. Sauter couldn't understand why. Then he saw the giant hole, the size of a coffee cup, in the bottom of his shoe. Sauter realized then that shoes were the least of Mpaka's problems. They basically had to fend for themselves, he said. I saw pictures of him smiling with his friends and all that stuff. You're looking at tin huts that he's living in, where his neighborhood is. For him to have shoes with holes in that environment, he was blessed. Once he got to the United States, he thrived. During his freshman year, Mpaka started 26 of 28 games and led the team in scoring with 11.6 points per game, shooting 56.7% from the field. Also, 5.6 rebounds per game and 0.6 blocks per contest. Mpaka spent every Sunday, the one day the team did not have practice or games, working in the school cafeteria cleaning dishes. Every dollar he made he sent back to his family in Africa so that they could buy food and clothes. I know where I'm from, he said. I cannot forget where I'm from. Mbaka had a ton of potential that Sauter wanted to tap into. He figured with some coaching and some time in the weight room, Mbaka's game could take off. Mbaka bulked up to 232 pounds. Over the summer, he worked on his three-point shooting, which became a strong part of his game. Mpaka was able to showcase his improvement when Sauter brought him to a practice at Texas Tech. He broke down all the big man's measurables. The results were impressive. Mpaka had a, has a 
7-foot-8 wingspan and a 36-inch vertical leap. That's high, high major stuff, Sauter said. When Sauter resigned from Frank Phillips in 2023 September, he, Sash reached out to Mpaka about transferring to Indian Hills. Mpaka just wanted a place to play so he could grow his game and continue to pursue his dream of playing Division I basketball and eventually the NBA. Indian Hills offered him that opportunity. Atumwa quickly became his home. When Mpaka's dad died early in the school year, Sauter knew he couldn't afford to go back, let alone pay for the funeral. So Sauter helped start a GoFundMe to raise money. He and Sash encouraged others to donate. It generated enough to pay for his dad's funeral. Coach Sash said, Don't worry, you are not alone. This is family for you. We can help you. You've got some people that love you, Mpaka said. After all that Mpaka has been through, things are looking better. On November 13th, the Warriors climbed to number 7 in the National Junior College Athletic Association DI Men's Basketball Poll. Mpaka had a strong start to the season. But there should be even bigger days ahead for him. You'll likely see him on the Division I roster next season. Sauter believes Mpaka doesn't know how talented he is, but others are learning. There's literally people that are quietly watching him from afar that are with the higher levels of basketball in this world just to see his growth. All Mpaka needs is a shot to show what he can do. He wants to be able to keep sending money back to his family, back to his homeland. That's always been his goal. I want to help my family, he says. Next is a story about Iowa football, and it's entitled The Story of Iowa's Improbable Big Ten West Title. It's written by Tyler Tockman of the Des Moines Register, and the dateline is Iowa City. They couldn't find a ball. After all of this, a sports wagering investigation, devastating injury after devastating injury, an offensive coordinator told he won't be coming back next season, a comeback win on senior day to clinch the Big Ten West title, the Hawkeyes couldn't find a game ball to give head coach Kirk Ferentz. First of all, we couldn't find the ball, Iowa quarterback Deacon Hill said, wearing a Big Ten West champion hat atop his head. We couldn't find the ball. It took us like five minutes to get one. On senior day, Iowa won the Big Ten West title, securing a bid to the conference title game in Indianapolis on Saturday, December the 2nd. It was Caleb Johnson's 30-yard touchdown run that proved to be the game-winning score as the Hawkeyes took down Illinois 15-13 to in dramatic fashion. After the game, finally, defensive coordinator Phil Parker, whose unit has allowed just two touchdowns in the last five games, presented a game ball to Ferentz. They hugged. There were cheers and water flying around. The coach held the ball up in the air with his right hand, his lips curled downward, clearly emotional as his players smiled and clapped around him. It goes back to the players, Ferentz told reporters afterward. That's why we do this, and just so happy for these guys, what they've endured and gone through. And they know what's going on too, but they're on board, and again, they've never flinched, including today. As Iowa prepared for the 2023 season, it was expected for the Hawkeyes to at least be in the running for a Big Ten West title. The Hawkeyes have now accomplished that goal, but far more improbable than the destination was the journey to get there. 
A sports wagering investigation hung over the program like a dark cloud, and even as the NCAA handed out penalties, not all was resolved. In a drawn-out sequence of events, Noah Shannon was ruled ineligible for the entire season, effectively ending his college career, then had an appeal denied, then was cleared to return to practice, giving way to rising hope for reinstatement, only for the NCAA's rule change, keeping him ineligible. Frustration from Ference was more about the severity of the punishment than it was that there was a punishment. On Saturday, Shannon was selected as the Hawkeyes' honorary captain. He was greeted by a loud cheer during the senior day festivities at Kinnick, but before then, on a day leading up to the game against Illinois, Shannon spoke to to the team. Just cherish everything. Cherish these moments, Joe Evans recalled of the message. They can be all taken away from you, and just go out there and play for your brothers. Another major hurdle for the team, injuries. So much of the reason to be optimistic about Iowa's offense was erased by medical issues. Luke Lachey went down with a major leg injury. Cade McNamara and Eric All both suffered season-ending ACL injuries. Deacon Hill was thrust into the spotlight when McNamara went down against Michigan State. Hill, who previously spent time at Wisconsin, hadn't even attempted a pass in college prior to 2023. After entering the transfer portal, he wasn't even headed to play FBS football, committing to Fordham before changing course to become a Hawkeye. Inexperience showed in his early games. Between that Michigan State game and his first two starts, Hill combined to go just 23 of 62 passing. But as of late, Hill looks markedly more comfortable. During the last two games combined, he has thrown for 390 yards on a much more efficient 39 of 60 while only throwing one interception. You know, not just individually, but as a team, we have gone through a lot this year and with injuries and whatever else, he said. I think it just shows the resiliency of this team and how determined everybody is. We just keep pushing forward each day and every day. Hill has come a long way since the loss to Minnesota when he turned the ball over three times. That October 21st game is another story in and of itself. With Iowa trailing in the fourth quarter, it appeared that star Cooper DeGene's returned a punt for a touchdown, which would have marked his second this season after he did so against Michigan State. But an invalid fair catch signal was called, the play was taken away, Iowa lost the game, and controversy followed. In spite of all the drama that had transpired on and off the field, Iowa managed to pull out wins. The Hawkeyes needed to win at least one of its last two regular season games to secure a spot in the Big Ten title game. All put together, it has made for an unforgettable season.